big changes ahead in 2016? This is Industry Focus. Hey everyone, this is Christine Hargis, your host of Industry Focus Healthcare Edition. I am pleased to welcome back via Skype Todd Campbell, our regular contributor. How are you doing, Todd? I'm glad to be back. I had a nice little uh, visit down in Florida, but and Florida's nice and all, but there's nothing to beat fall in New England. Yeah, I'm sure it's absolutely beautiful. Well, Colors we're, we're, are spectacular. I, I bet, yeah. And we're very happy to have you back. Thank you. So today we are starting to look at the new year now that it's November and thinking about some big trends that we might see in 2016. So we have two in particular. One of them is super timely. We wanted to talk about some of the elections that happened just last night, um, particularly as they relate to the issue of the legalization of marijuana and maybe project a little bit for 2016 what we might expect to see there. And then after that, we're going to turn to the hepatitis C market and do a a dive into a couple of the different key players in the market and see what's up for the next year and and beyond that, too. I mean, if if this is going to be a big trend in healthcare, which I definitely think it will be, then who stands to be a big winner? So let's dive right in. Todd, do you want to do a quick recap of what happened last night in the voting booths? Sure. The I think that one of the most intriguing things from anyone who is either a proponent or, or an opponent of the legalization of marijuana was watching very closely what happened in Ohio. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on in the background of the last couple of weeks uh, leading up to the Ohio election, um, which basically had a measure on its ballot saying, you know, we want to, re- to to legalize both recreational and medical marijuana. And this is the first time that we've seen both in one vote. Yeah, and if it had gone through, and it didn't, so there's a spoiler, if it had gone through, then um, it would have been the first time that recreational would have, you know, been come along at the same time or before uh, medical in that state. But it didn't. It didn't happen. The vote was uh, an, a resounding no, uh, we're not going to do it. Um, and I, I think that that makes a lot of people who are, you know, hoping for changes to legislation, especially in Ohio, uh, look at the headline and go, oh, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean for Ohio? And what does this mean for uh, potential, um, you know, items that will be on the ballot next year in a lot of other states, too? Yeah. And I, I think one of the reasons that people might have been puzzled about that headline of Oba or of uh, Ohio turning down marijuana, people would be surprised because prior surveys show Ohio citizens supporting legalization and overwhelmingly when you put it just to medical use. But there's a big caveat there. Yeah, the caveat was that this was not your average marijuana legislation. Uh, uh, legislation. Uh, what they did is they had a bunch of farmers um, who got together and said, listen, we want to see if we can get approval for growing marijuana and, and uh, on our land. So there were 10 parcels in particular uh, that they were looking to get approval to, to grow marijuana on. And people basically looked at that and said, well, wait, wait a minute. Why are we trying to limit um, the production to these 10 parcels? Isn't that a monopoly? It's really not. It's an oligopoly, but that's another story. Um, you know, but regardless, 
people in America don't care for monopolies because they think that that's going to disadvantage the consumer, and rightly so. Um, so, you know, you had the opponents of this legislation coming out and saying, you know what, um, this isn't the best way to do this. Uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why don't we turn it down and, you know, go back to square one? Um, they were convincing enough to uh, to enough uh, of people in the state to get the majority to vote against it. It was issue number three on the ballot, if you will. They also had uh, enough support to put issue number two on the ballot, which basically said you can't change the Constitution in any way that will allow for a monopoly to be created. Um, so that if issue three had passed, it would have directly gone against issue number two. It was very convoluted. Yeah, uh, and you, but- can, you can see by the reaction to issue two where... 1.55 million people said, yes, we, we do want this issue to pass, and 1.45 said no. So, I mean, it was kind of a complex issue, but essentially it was intended to create a barrier to the creation of monopolies or special tax conditions by basically requiring citizens to vote and actively waive the rules before voting on an issue itself that might create one of these situations. And so you can see by the reaction to that where people said, yeah, we want this barrier in place, that that kind of implies that this monopoly or oligopoly situation is why issue three about marijuana was turned down. Right. People overwhelmingly, people want to have more control over the over uh, uh, the production of marijuana, the sale and distribution of marijuana. They don't want to limit it in a few hands like the tobacco industry became. Um, they want to have it as diversified and, and as, uh, I guess, locally grown and distributed as they possibly can. And this seemed to fly in the face of that. And that's why a lot of the national organizations that support uh, or are advocating for changes in, in, in marijuana laws um, are distancing themselves from issue three and saying, listen, don't consider this to be the blueprint for what you're going to see on the ballots in other states in 2016, because this is a this is a very unique situation. And the story probably isn't over in Ohio. You know, you're, there'll probably be other legislation that will get put out, put forward. Uh, and as long as it doesn't, you know, run afoul of, of issue number two, um, you know, that could pass. Because like you said, polls overwhelmingly show, at least in terms of medical marijuana, that people in Ohio support changing the law. Yeah, so this will definitely be a state to keep an eye on in the 2016 elections. Another state that's been in the marijuana spotlight is Colorado, which did have another vote yesterday that uh, was Proposition BB, and it passed by a landslide. Yeah, Colorado is a very unique situation. It's kind of, I guess, what everyone is holding up to and looking at and saying, okay, well, can you legalize recreational marijuana and be able to tax it and have it be um, an effective you know, basically have it be an effective system. Can can you regulate it, tax it, and have it work? And I would argue that so far, so good, at least in the state of Colorado. You know, you've got a state that last year um, generated a significant amount of tax, tax revenue, um, far more, about 70% more than it did the year before. It's on pace to grow that tax revenue even more as we move into the the new fiscal year, which began in July. Um, And that money is being used and and handed back to school systems, et cetera. Um, So I I think that, you know, Colorado will be continued to to be looked at and watched and will probably a lot of 
people will be focusing back on that as they try and convince voters in states like Massachusetts and California and Arizona um, to pass legal marijuana in 2016. Yeah, and there are certainly more question marks around the Colorado situation, which is why so many people are watching it. But this whole Proposition BB vote was really not a surprise at all. I mean, the the vote, uh, the question that was posed to the voters was, should we take the tax revenue that we've collected from marijuana in this past year and put it to school programs and drug education? Or should it go back as a tax refund, uh, go to growers and, and users? And this really isn't surprising at all that the vote went for the school programs because Colorado citizens already voted on practically an identical measure in 2013. And the only reason that they had to do this revote to begin with was because Colorado brought in more overall revenue than initially projected for the year, which triggered this weird rule that basically said, all right, you guys need to revote now that there's more money at play. So Yeah, the pro- right. The projections were off. And as a result, you know, I, I mean, in order to keep up with the, I think the the meaning of the law when it was originally passed, I mean, th- it just made sense to go ahead and, and give it the okay. Right. So, Todd, before we close off the subject of marijuana, are there any other states we should keep an eye on in the 2016 elections? California is the biggest. I mean, you know, if as goes California, the, the nation will probably end up falling over time. Um, so, California, continue to watch that very closely. I'm also watching Massachusetts pretty closely, too, because, you know, you know, Gallup has done a bunch of studies that are evaluating how people feel about the marijuana subject, whether or not they will vote for it. What they found is that typically speaking, uh, people who are younger tend to vote uh, in favor of reforming the laws on marijuana. Uh, also, states that um, maybe have a more uh, bias towards Democrats rather than Republicans tend to vote in favor of marijuana legislation as well. Uh, obviously, California and Massachusetts will be two areas, therefore, um, that are highly populated that could have the best chances of getting uh, marijuana laws passed next year. Yeah, it'll surely be interesting. So before we uh, pivot over to the hepatitis C portion of our show, which will definitely be very stock heavy, I just want to remind everybody that, as always, people on the program could have interest in the stocks that they talk about. The Motley Fool could have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. Do your own research. Consider this a launch pad for getting a great investing idea and then digging your teeth into it even further. So hepatitis C certainly has been in the news a ton during 2015, and I I think it's poised to be a big issue in 2016 as well. There are quite a handful of different companies that are working on improving treatment for hepatitis C. And in most recent news, uh, AbbVie, which makes a drug called Viacurapac, another one called Technivie, received news from the FDA that there was a safety alert going out that the FDA had received reports of liver failure and complications in patients taking these drugs that had already had scarring of the liver. So Abby said in reaction to this that a causal relationship between the treatments and the adverse effects hadn't actually been established, but the drugs couldn't be ruled out as a cause. Um, Another result was that the label for the drugs is being updated to warn against use in patients with more advanced liver scarring. This is 3 to 5% of hepatitis C patients, just for context. So I think people saw that news and they said, oh man, Abby is not going to be a big player in hepatitis C anymore. So then if they're potentially going to lose market share because of this, who do you think stands to be the big winner here? I mean, this is kind of like a, for me, at least a no-brainer of a question if you've listened to our show before. But Todd? 
Gillian Sackerson. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Not very surprising for long-time listeners, that's for sure. Um, you know, the news coming out of it, Abby tried to downplay this on their earnings conference call. And I, I urge, you know, people to always dig into the transcripts of the conference calls, uh, especially with top-selling multi-billion dollar drugs, to make sure that there's nothing that they need to be aware of that could shift the, the, the market share the way market share looks. And certainly as we go into 2016, a lot could theoretically happen that's going to shift um, chairs around uh, in hepatitis C. Um, AbbVie is just one part of that, but it's an important part of it because, you know, as we came into 2015, the big question on everybody's minds is how much market share can Pact steal away for, from Gilead Sciences' top-selling drugs, Sovaldi, uh, which launched in December of 13, and Harvoni, which launched in October of 14. Those drugs have been massively successful. They're high-priced drugs, but they work very, very well. And as a result, they've been used to treat hundreds of thousands of patients, and they've generated out billions of dollars in revenue for Gilead Sciences. Vicarapac, over the first nine months of this year, so it, it you know, got one approval and launched in January, okay, um, have not reached the run rate that AbbVie had hoped and had guided for uh, coming out of 2014. Uh, AbbVie had hoped to see that drug putting up a, a run rate of about $3 billion per year. We're not quite there. In third quarter, it was about $469 million. So, you look at that and you say, okay, well, why is that happening? It could be that there was some early insight into this um, problem uh, with livers, um, you know, as doctors were discussing with one another. Um, this certainly, this revelation, this addition to the label, um, it, it's not a deal breaker for Vicarapac because it's still very successful um, in in patients that aren't don't have suffer from liver uh, disease uh, already. But it certainly could mean fewer people are treated with it, especially since Savaldi and Harboni work so well. Um, that to some extent, the sales impact on AbbVie in 2016 may be offset uh, by a recent approval in Japan, which is a major market. Um, for hepatitis C treatment. So it's, it's not sure, I'm not willing to go out and say yet that the year-over-year -year sales will decline for Vicarapac in 2016 uh, because of this, because Japan should offset some of that downside risk. Uh, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And I think that most people should be reevaluating their models on what they think Vicarapac could do in the next 12 months. Right. And when you look at Gilead, you compare the numbers of Harvoni and Savaldi, and so they combined for $4.8 billion in sales during the third quarter. And Todd quoted that the Akira Pack generated revenue of only $469 million in the third quarter. So, you know, half a billion dollars is not nothing, but it really pales in comparison to Gilead's numbers. I mean, Gilead is claiming a 90% market share of hepatitis C patients. So, clearly, they're currently the dominating player. But is there anybody else, Todd, other than just AbbVie, that's competing in this space and could stand to take down Gilead's dominance here? There are a couple. Uh, Bristol-Myers has a couple drugs that are currently on the market. Um, however, most of those sales, uh, you know, they're, they're, again, <laughs> we shouldn't downplay, you know, billion-dollar run rates. But, you know, Bristol-Myers drugs in third quarter for hepatitis C brought in about $400 million. Uh, that was down from $460 million the year before because most of Bristol-Myers sales, or a lot of them in that space, are coming out of Japan. 
And in the past year, you know, Gilead Sciences won approval in Japan. Now Abbey's winning approval in Japan. So I think Bristol Myers is going to end up becoming more of a niche uh, drug uh, in the space, offering selling more drugs in the niche category. Um, I think a much bigger threat, though, could come from Merck next year. So people should be watching Merck very closely in January of next year because that's when the FDA is set to make a decision on approving its hepatitis C drugs. And in trials, those drugs, in my opinion, match up best to what uh, Gilead's Harboni uh, delivered in its own trials. And obviously, we know that Harboni has been a massive success. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, especially because the drugs are kind of similar in efficacy, and they're both one pill per day. To me, the only advantage or distinguishing factor that I could see here between the offerings from Gilead and from Merck is Harvoni can be dosed over just eight weeks in more than 40% of genotype 1 patients, and that that's the biggest percentage of patients with hepatitis C. Merck's drug is always going to be 12 weeks. So if you reduce duration, that's going to improve adherence, which is going to make your real-life efficacy better. So I could see that being an advantage going to Gilead. Maybe if it ends up going the other way, it could be a pricing issue. Yeah, but, you know, Merck on its conference call was pretty firm in saying that, no, they're not going to um, fight on price for market share. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out, too. Vicuripac could be the one that stumbles. Yeah. And one other thing that I'll point out is Merck doesn't have any other hepatitis C drugs all the way back until phase one. So, you know, it, to me, it doesn't look like they have this huge lineup of drug after innovative drug to win away market share. Whereas you look at Gilead Sciences and they're already developing its own next generation hepatitis C therapy. And this really, to me, looks like somebody who is continuing to innovate and, and continuing to try to get even better and better drugs. Um, the next uh, hepatitis C therapy that they just submitted to the FDA for approval on October 28th is a pangenotype drug, which could theoretically eliminate the need for genotype testing to distinguish, do you have genotype 1 or, or which particular variety of the disease? So I could see this being particularly helpful in emerging markets if you know they don't quite have the same uh, healthcare infrastructure that we have here. To eliminate the need for genotype testing could make this drug more accessible. And the, the data looks pretty good. In phase three, it posted a 98% durable response after 12 weeks. And this was a trial across genotypes one through six. Yeah. And again, this may allow them to sidestep any threat from Merck as well. I mean, there's no question in my mind that Gilead Science is going to be the dominant player again in 2016 in syndication. Um, Merck may pass AbbVie. Uh, and then in 2017, if you really want to look forward, maybe then it gets a little bit more interesting again, because that's when AbbVie's next generation cocktail uh, could hit the market. And that's also when uh, other therapy from Johnson & Johnson may start to start to make its way towards the FDA as well. And we shouldn't discount Johnson & Johnson. They're just a little further back in their research. They've got some ongoing phase two um, stuff underway, which looks really intriguing and could, again, uh, help them in the in creating a shorter duration therapy for HCV. So this is going to be a very interesting space to watch uh, over the course of the next two years still. Yeah. And as long-term investors, that's what we want to be looking at is not just who's the current market share winner, but looking ahead at the pipelines and figuring out who will continue to win this space. I mean, I think one last big piece of the puzzle that is worth touching on is 
so you have a hepatitis C treatment. That means you're cured. So are these drugs eliminating their own market? I mean, do you think that this isn't going to be a huge space for drug makers in a couple of years because we've already treated everyone? Yeah, I mean, even if you look at it and say, okay, if if we're going to treat – if Gilead's going to treat 300,000, 350,000 people a year. Maybe the other ones, we get up to 400. Even if we get up to 500,000 people per year, the U.S. market should be able to um, handle that kind of, of, of pace until at least 2020, maybe 2021. Um, Japan should be able to, you know, that market's still probably addressable into you know, 2023, 2024. I'd say Europe goes even further than that because they've got 9 million people who are um, suffering from this disease. And then, of course, there's the emerging market population, which, you know, some people estimate as high as 170 million people. So, yes, eventually, I mean, the goal would be to have no one having hepatitis C because of these drugs. Does that mean that this market disappears uh, in the next two years? No. Five years, it starts in some places to get a little bit murky. Um, but I would say that you're still generating a lot of money. This multi-billion dollar blockbuster indication for at least 10 years. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And there's so many people that are estimated to have this disease. And I, I think once the drugs are more and more prevalent, especially in developing areas, you're going to get a woodwork effect where even more people go and get tested and figure out that they have the disease. And the hope there, of course, is just that we have the best of the best drugs to treat them with. Uh, Todd, thank you so much for weighing in here. Uh, be sure to keep your eyes out, folks, for any more changes in this space. This and, and marijuana are clearly going to be two huge issues in 2016. So hold tight. Uh, keep listening to all your industry-focused episodes and check back to fool.com for more information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>